Sandy Clough and Sean Trotar. Weekdays at 2 on Mile High Sports. Welcome to the show. My name is Sean Trotar. Sandy Clough on my left. Sandy uh, Iron Man this week on the morning shows with Eric Goodman. Then still sticking around. Talk about uh, more with us this afternoon. And obviously, uh, we will talk about the Gabriel Landeskog news. Uh, you and I actually had actually last week thought this was a possibility and, and something that the Avalanche needed to consider. And and obviously, we'll get into the details of Landeskog missing uh, all of next year and what that means for the Avalanche. Uh, the truth of the matter is, while that's not good news for Landeskog, um, there is a silver lining for the Avalanche because now, unlike last year, when they know he will not play, they can then put him on long-term reserve. Well, that's why it was the chief priority during this offseason. The number one thing they needed to establish was whether he would play next year or not play next year. And they had to establish it definitively for that very reason. So they'd uh, have something to do with their $7 million. And then, uh, as Eric himself reminded me just a few minutes ago, we were chatting and made mention of the fact that salary cap will go up after next year and after the following year to the point where um, they will have roughly the same space, uh, if not a little more, under the cap even when he does return. They can bring a player or a combination of players in next year to fill the void and understand, again, this is the captain of the team who even playing with a bad right knee had 22 points in 20 playoff games in 2022 and had his first 30-goal season in 51 games that same year, last year. So the hope is he can play. My assumption would be that uh, given the nature of the surgery, it's a cartilage transplant. Transplant. He's playing bone-on-bone. Tremendous pain. Uh, but that's who Gabriel, Gabriel Landeskog is. And I would assume, uh, upon consulting any number of uh, doctors on this matter, uh, he was told um, that surgery would not only be necessary for the possible resumption of his career, but would be a good lifestyle choice as well. Yes. Get the cartilage uh, basically transplanted so that, he would not be dealing with pain in that right knee, arthritis or otherwise, uh, for the rest of his life. Right. That it was a lifestyle decision, too, and it leaves open the chance that he could play again, although I suppose nothing is guaranteed. If you've missed two full seasons, nothing is absolutely certain. And you've missed what will be your age 30 and 31 seasons, right. too. We're not talking right. about uh, Lonzo Ball, who's had a similar uh, recovery well, and it has been problematic there as well. So. Well, yes, I, I think that's equally problematic. I understand Lonzo Ball is younger, but it's the same thing. He is uh, in the midst of uh, uh, a career-threatening situation, yeah. much as Landis Gog is. I, I imagine the injuries have some relation to each other, and uh, you hope for both uh, good luck and the chance to resume their careers uh, as they once were but i think i think the point you make is probably uh, to my mind the one that's very important for abs fans to understand given the age given the fact that now you're going to be missing at least two years the reality is and i, th- I think you hit it on the head 
that this is a surgery that is somewhat designed to get him to return to the ice and resume his career, but I'm not entirely convinced that it's, you know, this is, this is the slam dunk. I think you hit it on the head. It's like, look, you're going you're gonna to want this for your post-playing career, which is no matter how you slice it, far closer now than it was to the beginning. And that's obviously part of this as, uh, you know, a, a, that needs to be considered as well. And obviously you wish Landis Gog the best of luck and the Avalanche the best of luck. And uh, it, again, you know, I brought it up some time ago. It, it's going to take everyone a while, I think, to wrap their heads around it over time. But uh, John O's helicopter was a really cool leadership moment, and it really mattered for the Denver Broncos winning a Super Bowl. It pales in comparison to what Gabriel Landeskog did to help the Avalanche win a Super Bowl. I agree. Uh, I agree. And he played over a period of not just days or weeks, but months, undoubtedly in tremendous pain. In a knee that they knew and was not right. And they rushed badly back. on his game. It, it no, didn't. Uh, it he, he, he looked. Uh, as good as he ever had, averaged more than a point a game in the playoffs, and he was a player without whom the Avalanche would not have won the Stanley Cup. There's several players who uh, could make that claim, uh, but he was certainly one of them who could quite legitimately say, uh, I, I think I made the right choice because not only was I functional, I was productive, and it was worth the risk. And the risk entails at least an absence of two years. Right. At bare minimum, uh, if not potentially the end of his career. And obviously you wouldn't like that to be the case, but Landis God, whether he does anything else on the ice ever again, will certainly have his jersey retired by the avalanche. And and the, I imagine even if uh, you wouldn't think about it this day, but years from now, Landis God might eventually look back and say, well, if the last game of my career was me hoisting the Stanley Cup, yeah. I think I can live with that. And that's and that's the trade that that he was willing to make, and I give him a lot of credit for that. And certainly now you hope that this. Uh, I hope it gets him back on the ice, but I really hope more that it just makes it comfortable live a normal for the rest life. of yeah. That it, it's you know it's not going to stop normal playing golf life. and being a parent right. and with the kid and doing all the things you want to do. I, that's that's the primary concern from from my standpoint at this stage. Not with so much with the Denver Nuggets who need to get a win because it kind of feels like. If the Nuggets are going to win this series, it's going to be in Game 7, and it's going to be on the court here in Denver because this feels like one of those. You say, you know, there's no series till the road team wins a game. Uh, this might go 7 with the road team not winning a game. Could be. Uh, we, we never know for sure what the personality of a series is going to be after just four games. Uh, for example, in the first round, Golden State and Sacramento uh, – Played the first four games uh, with the home team winning, not necessarily handily, but the home team winning. And then all of a sudden, a home team series became a road team series in the last three games with Golden State winning at Sacramento in games five and seven and Sacramento uh, keeping the series alive in game six in San Francisco. Um, I think this very well could be a series decided strictly on the basis of of home court advantage. I think that is a distinct possibility. Um, the Nuggets are hoping that uh, simply a change in venue will have something to do with the cooling off of one Devin Booker, who has, uh, in spite of uh, Nikola Jokic's heroics the other night, essentially taken over this series. And it's interesting to me that I'm reading as much about 
what the Nuggets might do in guarding Booker, and they have had multiple defenders on Booker, as I am about who's going to guard Durant. Uh, My sense of it is that Peyton Watson would be more ably suited to guard Durant at 6'8", as opposed to Booker. But, I mean, do you think for a second I would Michael Malone's going to put a, I would a put out there? Gordon on Booker. You put Gordon on Lillard and playoffs passed. Uh, you've put uh, Gordon on uh, a Golden State guard or two, yep. I think, during the playoffs last year. Why not put him on Booker and give Booker a little more height to look at than Contavious Caldwell Pope could provide. I would then, uh, at least at the beginning, I, I'd put different guys on Durant too, but I might start with Michael Porter. Everybody's talking about, got to run more plays for Michael Porter. Got to run more sets. Got to uh, get him more shots. And I'm thinking he had 13 shots the other night and he scored 12 points in a clearly inefficient uh, performance. If you want to get him into the game, give him a defensive challenge for once in his life and say, go out and, and show us what you can do. And if he fails, you get him off uh, Durant. And you have uh, Bruce Brown, who even at 6'4", has guarded people like Kevin Durant. He's Kevin Durant's former teammate with the Brooklyn Nets. He knows him as well as anybody on the That's Nuggets knows point. him. And uh, there is also uh, always uh, Christian Brown or maybe Peyton Watson to try on Kevin Durant. But right now, the guy you've got to cool off even more than Durant is Devin Booker. And that is the big question. Uh, It doesn't begin and end with matchups. You can change your coverage. You can uh, certainly give help. Uh, But it's harder to do on Booker than it would be on uh, Durant. And say, well, you know, Bruce Brown is too small to guard Kevin Durant, for example. Well, Kevin Durant can shoot over anybody, including Nikola Jokic, very easily. He's almost as tall as Jokic. He has a high release. People aren't, unless they're doing it from behind or from the side, blocking Kevin Durant's shots. I don't care how tall they are. Obviously, this is a, a situation where the, the Nuggets do need more offense. Nikola Jokic, by the way, in game four, the 53 points, the fourth most ever by any player in a playoff loss and the most by anybody in a regulation playoff loss in history. And, and even more than that, to get an idea of how remarkable Jokic has been, he played 39 minutes in game four. The Jordan game was an overtime game, wasn't it? Jordan against had 63 Boston. overtime, that was overtime. In, in April of 86. Yep. Yep. Donovan Mitchell with his 57 against Denver. Overtime. Uh, Damian Lillard, 55 against Denver. Overtime. Um, I think that I have this uh, right. Let me double check. Uh, the 140 to 137 game would have been 2019. So it was 2019 in which they played four overtimes in Portland. But they played, I think, two in the game that... This was in the 2021. Yeah, this was... In uh, uh, 2021, they played four overtimes and 
Lillard went nuts and scored 50-plus points. And uh, at, at that point, um, I think in game six, uh, Gordon had guarded Lillard a little bit in the series, but it became more of a regular thing in game six, and Gordon did a pretty good job, actually. Those 39 minutes Jokic played, you go through the top 25 performances of the most in a, in a playoff loss. Well, you have to go down to number 18 ever when Jerry West scored 48 in a <laughs> loss against the Baltimore Bullets in 1965 to find somebody who at least possibly played fewer minutes than Jokic. And the only reason we don't know is because they didn't track the numbers on the, they didn't track the minutes. So you have to go back right. to Jerry right. West in 65, Elgin Baylor in 61, and George yes. Mikan against Rochester in 52 mm-hmm. to find yeah. guys who had maybe scored more points in and fewer minutes. And that was pretty shot clap, by the way, with Mikan. Right. In 1952. So, I mean, you're talking about Jokic having essentially an unparalleled performance in the history of the NBA playoffs. Right. Right. And the Nuggets still lost. Well, I remember uh, not having watched, even I was too too young for that, but I remember Baylor's game. um, And uh, I, I don't recall West's game, but when you mentioned it was Baltimore, believe it or not, in 1965, the Los Angeles Lakers and the Baltimore Bullets were in the same division, and it was called the Western Division. Like that the Baltimore good. Bullets Yeesh. were in the West. Now, that changed within a year or two, and Baltimore became an Eastern Division team. There weren't enough teams at that point in the NBA to call them conferences. They were referred to as Eastern Division and Western Division, but that's how West came to play not in the NBA Finals against the Baltimore Bullets, obviously. They got beaten by the Celtics that that year, 1965. Uh, but they did play the Bullets in the playoffs, and West had 48. And uh, West, I believe, in the 1969 NBA Finals, well, I know he was named MVP on the losing side, which is virtually unprecedented um, for NBA Finals MVP award winners to be on the losing side, but he averaged, I think in that series, around 40 a game. And that was as remarkable as anything Michael Jordan ever did as an individual in the playoffs. And that's why Jerry West, if not on my first all-time All-NBA team, is definitely on the second one, Uh, though he was part of only one championship season, and that was with Wilt Chamberlain uh, in 1971-72. West was magnificent in defeat. Not that it made him feel any better, but he was magnificent in defeat. But a good many of these high-scoring games, including the one Jokic had the other night, result in losses uh, because, obviously, uh, in the Jordan-Boston game in 86, Chicago didn't have anybody that could match Boston other than Jordan. Right. And he put on a show, and uh, I think he fouled out Dennis Johnson. Uh, He might have fouled out Danny Ainge in that game. That was the most impressive thing. All the people on Boston's side who fouled out trying to guard Jordan that night, and the fact that maybe the greatest single-season team that ever existed was taken to overtime by a Chicago team that without Michael Jordan wouldn't have won 20 games there. I, entirely possible. I mean, the rest of that, you, you just look at that starting lineup, not only with Jordan and uh, your next best player, I guess, historically would have been 
Charles Oakley, that even he had 10 points that night. Uh, the second high scorer was Orlando Woolridge, who, of course, had his best year of his career in the, the Paul Westhead system in yes. Denver with 24 points in 54 minutes. After that, you got to go down to Dave Corzine, who had eight. Kyle Macy with seven. Gene Banks with eight off the bench. Uh, George Gervin well, was on that Michael. team, but only played five minutes. Well, the George, his uh, uh, Gervin was playing. And John Paxson at the... Yeah. I only had four back then coming off the bench. So, I mean, yeah, it was it was Jordan versus. That's when you you know they called them those first uh, those years of the Jordan the Jordanaires because well, it was nobody else. Right, and Larry Bird said uh, either after that game or after that series, uh, I have seen God in a basketball <laughs> right. uniform, and it, it, this was uh, right before uh, Bird had uh, decl- uh, Bird was to declare that. Magic Johnson was the greatest player he ever played against. Uh, Bird Bird was very subtle about making uh, distinctions. He said Dennis Johnson was his best teammate. I think in part as a jab at Kevin McHale, who Bird thought was an underachiever. Uh, he said Jordan was, you know, superhuman, uh, but that Magic was the best basketball player he ever uh, played against. And uh, Bird, I suspect, would be a major Nikola Jokic fan for all the reasons that uh, sane people uh, who know basketball uh, feel that Nikola Jokic is very much unique and an all-time great. And keep in Even mind, out of those speak. top 25 performances, only Jokic, Mikan, who we talked about with the 25th, and Akeem Olajuwon when he scored 49 in a loss to Seattle back in 87. Those are the only three centers on that list. That's it. I mean, what Jokic has done in the playoffs in these last two games, that's one of the concerns for the Nuggets, Sandy, is you cannot realistically ask for more from Nikola Jokic. What he's doing is borderline unprecedented, and it's being even outshined by Devin Booker. And the, the Nuggets need to find help. But there's a bright side, everybody, because, you know, things have changed. When you look in Vegas, the lines are moving again with Denver being the bigger favorite, being more likely to win via via ESPN analytics. I'll explain all of those. Yeah. And we'll talk about what it means next on My Life Sports. Sandy Clough and Sean Trotar, presented by Burnham Law. Hire the winner at BurnhamLaw.com. Here's Sean and Sandy. Well, sometimes when the uh, the folks in Vegas make some late moves, it's interesting. And the Nuggets went from four, uh, four and a half point favorites to six point favorites today. Over at ESPN, their analytics uh, matchup predictor, the yesterday they were 64.8%. Now they're 72.8%. Now, Obviously, there hasn't been any new injury news revealed. No, uh, nobody no. really learned anything in practice. So there must be a feel, maybe the come down after that phenomenal game four performance, that maybe some of what Phoenix did was not sustainable, grabbing guys that hadn't even gotten on the court and having them put up double-digit numbers. Right. And maybe that's starting to come back to, to earth a little bit. People realizing, wait a minute, you know, but even if Booker and Durant do that again, even if they do that again, 
which would be stunning. They won't get the same bench. They still won't, wouldn't probably get the same bench help. And, and the Nuggets bench, which was abysmal. In fact, a lot of the Nuggets were quite, quite frankly not very good, including I think Aaron Gordon and, and Michael Porter Jr. There should be some return to what you expect. We 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 call these averages for reason. They're averages. It's, yeah. It's what you know, for the most part, this is where you end up at. And and the Suns overachieved in Game Four, and the Nuggets underachieved in Game Four. If you remove the three great superstars, Devin Booker though is define the math, and uh, I think it's reasonable to assume that even if he shot 65 percent tonight, and maybe over the next three games, if in fact there are three more games in this series. Even if he continued to shoot at about a 60-65% clip, that would represent a come down of sorts. Right. And the bench won't be as good. And if you add all that together and the laws of uh, probability, laws of chance, and so on, uh, the the, uh, way to lean would be in the direction of his not being quite as good as he was, although still very good, not being quite as good as he was in Phoenix. And I kind of see it playing out that way. But you throw into that the measure of pressure because the last time the Nuggets were in a 2-2 series was against Portland two years ago in the first round. They played a game five here. And it was one of the great spectacles, especially if you love offense, that you'll ever see in an NBA game. And in fact, they were never in a 2-2 series in the bubble. And the previous 2-2 scenario had also come against Portland. And during that series, in game three, There was a game that went four overtimes that Denver won. Um, That series, of course, resulted in a Nugget Game 5 win, but a loss in the series in 2019. In 2021, the Nuggets won that overtime game, which frankly could have gone either way, and Lillard did basically what Booker has done to the Nuggets in the last two games, and it wasn't quite enough. The Nuggets won the game. Then they rallied, and I remember the game vividly because we did post-game work afterwards. Uh, In game six, they rallied from a double-digit deficit uh, in the first half, I believe, and won the sixth game against Portland, closed out the series. So it's been two years plus since the Nuggets played in this circumstance, a tie series, uh, a quote-unquote pivotal game five, and a 2-2 series playing at home. So there's an element of pressure that, at least as Nuggets, a good many of these players haven't felt before. And this will be an interesting game to watch uh, just from a psychological point of view on both sides. Mm -hmm. And the Nuggets are facing a two-game losing streak in the playoffs, which is something that we never could have conceived of in the first round. I mean, Minnesota might get a game, right? 
but they they'd never beat the Nuggets two games in a row. But if you remember, the fifth game was a little too close for comfort. Mm-hmm. Right up yes. until the final minute or so of the game, the outcome was in doubt. Minnesota ran out to a huge lead in the first quarter. And though the Nuggets came back and had the lead and essentially had control of the game, it was three points, four points, five points for virtually the entire second half. And the Nuggets looked a little uncomfortable at times because they weren't able to pull away and simply dispatch the Minnesota Timberwolves. That pressure will be there tonight. I think the Nuggets will react well to it. The Nuggets are a seasoned playoff team. Uh, They aren't the most successful of playoff teams in recent years, especially outside the bubble, but they are a seasoned playoff team and I think should react accordingly. Well, certainly that's exactly what uh, the Nuggets hope for. I want to know your opinion on it. The uh, caller text line here is 303-831-1340. Do you feel that this was the, just kind of a blip that that the Suns were playing out of their mind. They were more comfortable at home. You know, how will that go? Now, one of the things I think is interesting about it is the idea that traditionally in Denver, right, you can kind of run a team out of out of the gym. Well, I don't think you can run the Suns out of the gym. In fact, the Suns actually played very well at pace when they don't have Chris Paul, and they won't again tonight. The Nuggets are the team that is generally not playing at a – very fast pace. Well, these are the 22nd, 23rd ranked teams during mm-hmm. the regular season in pace. But, but Phoenix, number 22, Chris Paul Denver, in the last two games, very, Phoenix very different pace. With more pace. Now, if you look at the pace numbers for, for any playoff series, they're the same for both teams. <laughs> right. The pace of the game is the pace of the game, and a series involves only two competitors, not multiple competitors over the course of a season. It's one, a small sample size, and two, the pace, if you were to look at it, is actually slower than either team set during the regular season. But the difference is that Phoenix has quickened the pace in the last two games successfully, and Denver was more comfortable in a game with with less pace, a little bit in game one, but game two was a slugfest, 97-87. I don't think we'll see 97-87 tonight. No, I I think we're seeing, I think the rest of this series now is going to be fought in the 110s and 120s. I just think that's where we're going to be at. And that means that the, the Nuggets Both teams to do shooting that, well in this series. So now Phoenix is, shooting is 49% that, and the Nuggets shooting 48.8%. Do you think, Sandy, that that actually, in a roundabout way, gives the Nuggets an advantage because they're going to have to play at a faster pace to keep up, in which you've kind of shown over the course of the season very clearly that they're better when they do. Now, yeah. does it matter if you're forced into it or you get to dictate it? How does that change the way that a team can play at pace? If you play I mean, some I mean, different basketball people. basketballers run on and, this. And again, I mean, this there's, a, they, there's a balance to coach it. college basketballers try to get people off their pace. You're dealing with perhaps Michael Malone said yesterday, you know, everything's on the table. Um, Guys who haven't played could play Um, specifically for ball handling purposes, Reggie Jackson and for defensive purposes, Peyton Watson. 
Well, maybe you learned okay. something from Monty Williams, right? Right. Or from uh, Darvin Ham, a first-year head coach, mm-hmm. who last night put his fate in the hands of Lonnie Walker IV in the fourth quarter, and Lonnie Walker did his Kobe Bryant impersonation in the fourth quarter with the greatest fourth quarter in Laker playoff annals over the last 26 years since Kobe, which would have been 1997. This was young Kobe. <laughs> this was maybe even teenage Kobe at that point. I don't remember exactly. All I can think about is LeBron but, but I, and his uh, not one, not two, not three, but Lonnie Walker. Lonnie Walker. Four. Lonnie Walker, Fourth number Lonnie four. Walker, well, right. they, they went beyond four. <laughs> they did. They, 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 they went all the way up to six. Yeah, he kept going to something silly. Kept going. Uh, but I, I think the idea that Malone is willing not to experiment, but to take a shot in the absence of anything else that's really worked at Booker and or Durant, playing them differently, having a different mix maybe a different substitution pattern, um, I'd say uh, better late than never. I think that would be better late than never. Uh, It took him four games to get to this point that the other coaches in the playoffs reached uh, earlier on. But I I think you take a page out of, even though they lost the game, Steve Kerr's book last night, Jordan Poole was a significant part of the Warriors championship team a year yeah, ago, and he's been struggling. And Steve Kerr, in a situation in which his team was down two games to one and really needed to win last night, gave Jordan Poole a couple of stints of roughly five minutes apiece, wasn't getting the job done, didn't score, and said, I can't play him. I He started Gary Payton over Jordan Poole, and then in the fourth quarter, he went to Moody with Jordan Poole readily available, and I'm not sure what was going on because it appeared that Peyton, that Peyton kept running on and off the court and Peyton may have maybe, had, uh, had some, maybe stomach issues. some stomach issues. Yeah, Who knows? But I think uh, Malone's willingness to maybe not necessarily play more people but play different people is, is a sign that the Nuggets have to put not necessarily more points on the board, but they have to put more pressure on defense and speed the game up on their terms rather than Phoenix getting the ball uh, on on the relatively few occasions that the Nuggets have missed in this series. The Nuggets have scored plenty of points sure. in, in this but series. They haven't shot and they poorly. did in Phoenix. Right. And they, they've shot very well. But when Phoenix gets the ball and instead – of dumping it off to Paul and letting him walk it up, they're sprinting down the court led by Booker and or Durant. Uh, Booker may be initiating and Durant finishing more often than not, but they're finding holes in a defense that isn't set. Uh, The Nuggets kind of put that pressure on Phoenix's defense, which is not great, and not let them get set. Not allow, because when you're set, you can use Durant as a rover. Uh, if, if you're pushing the pace, Durant's got to find somebody in transition. He can't. He doesn't have 15 or 20 seconds in the possession to roam around and kind of try to read what's coming. Uh, the idea that the Suns 
what Porter said after the game. They seem to know what we're going to do. That's in the half court. The Nuggets play too much half court basketball in Phoenix, and it ended up hurting their defense. And this is where I mentioned specifically, and I am not trying to pile on, but this is where Jamal Murray has to understand that if you reduce your offense to a two-man game, you're playing right into the Suns' hands. And well, sure, I, they don't I, have to pay attention to the other three right. guys. And I understand that this is sort of Murray's style. The, the, when, he, when he is pressed, when he feels that the team is, is not playing across the board, and I say that specifically when, it, when you watch Murray's career, when teammates are not shooting well, especially in the early going, and it, the game starts to feel like it's slipping away, Murray tends to go to his comfort level, which is, of course, me in the back-to-back MVP. I mean, of course that's your comfort level. Why wouldn't it be? But that's something I think that Jamal Murray has to understand that he falls into that habit and has to adjust and has to do and has to do a little bit differently. I think a lot of that does land on Murray to make sure that ball does not get sticky and make sure the pace is going and make sure you involve your other teammates. I get it. If Michael Porter Jr. is not having a good shooting night, let the coach take care of that. If he's on the floor and he's open, you need to still yeah. hit the open man and believe in him. That's the coach's job to, to make the yeah. replacement. And that's where I think Murray, in the next evolution of his game, and maybe really the last thing he needs to do, is he needs to, when times are tough, still trust the open man on the floor to make the shot. Nikola Jokic does it. I don't think Jamal Murray does. Well, I, I think Jamal Murray actually did more of that this year, but he has slipped into old habits. Uh, it's the excessive dribbling that, that bothers me. Not not that he's ignoring certain people. Porter had plenty of chances. He did. I had 13 he shots. Did. Shot four for 13. I wouldn't throw him the ball either. Um, he's lazy. He doesn't move without the ball. Uh, doesn't play any defense. Uh, I think there's very little, in fact, to recommend Michael Porter's uh, overall game. He's a streak shooter. Uh, he has a nice stroke. Um, but he doesn't get fouled very much. He's not a very good foul shooter when he goes to the line. He's not a, as good a foul shooter as he should be. Um, I, I, I would say Michael Porter has got to get into the game too. But the dribbling has been excessive, and I will concede that in the box score the other night, Jamal Murray played what appeared to be an efficient game. But for those of us who watched the game, it wasn't quite as efficient as it seemed to be if you were just looking at the box score. And, and I think that's fair. I'm, I'm really not at the point where... He didn't turn the ball over. He made yeah, more than I, half I his don't shots. I think he played but, poorly. But, 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 um, you know, without saying he was the main culprit, uh, the way he played, certainly in Game 3, and maybe to a slightly lesser extent in Game 4, was not helpful. Jokic should have the ball and the offense should run through Jokic, which it does a great deal of the time. I think in this series, I don't totally buy into the idea that Maria is trying to match Booker. No, I don't. Uh, the two Kentucky guards. I don't have, think he is. Have, I don't think either guy is doing that. But I do think, unlike Booker, Murray's tendency when things aren't going well is to dribble more. And yeah. try to find openings, He's not looking through for the, the pass, perfect situation. but through the dribble. Yes. And whether it's the perfect situation or not, it results in his 
taking tougher shots. Murray is one of the better players in the league at making an unusually high percentage of tough shots, but it's kind of just the opposite of Porter, who who really almost never makes a contested shot, but is pretty good making uncontested shots, as, as most decent shooters are. I, Murray, it seems sometimes, I know that isn't what he's thinking, but almost at times it appears as if Murray is trying to create the greatest degree of difficulty possible because he believes from all his training, all the years with his father growing up, that he can make the tough shots almost all the time. And he can't. The uh, other, can't. The other he, part of he, this... He, he, He's better taking easier shots the way most people are. With dribbling, the other part of this too, and again, I, I am not piling on Murray. He has not played poorly, but but if you're looking at, we're getting into the the thick of the playoffs here. These are narrow margins, so you have to look at where you can continue to improve. There are a couple ways the Nuggets can improve in this game. Sandy's alluded to some of them. I'll sort of uh, refine it a little bit, bounce it around with Sandy and with you when we come back next to My Life Sports. This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. It is right here, right now, game five. Really need to win this one to be a Denver Nuggets. I don't even need to tell you what the odds are if you don't win game five. It's, it happens, but it's not good. We're just not even going to get It's around 80%. It. Yeah, it is. In and a 2-2 scenario, the winner of game five goes on to win the series and it's, about four times out of five. Yes, and it's actually a slightly higher percentage if the road team wins game five. Oh, I can, imagine, can imagine. Because you're going back home for game six. Right, so that's obviously a critical game for the Nuggets. And some of the stuff that you know we've been talking about, Sandy, and, and we, we've talked about it during the break, too, the idea we, we floated yesterday of having Michael Porter Jr. guard Kevin Durant. We're not asking him to stop Kevin Durant. But here, here's the thing I really want the Nuggets to think about. And... You brought it up with Porter Jr., and you're right. The guy doesn't get to the free throw line very often. Here's one of the things the Nuggets can do when we're talking about these narrow margins because these two teams are rather evenly matched in their own oddball sort of way. The Suns have adapted, specifically Kevin Durant, and decided to take the ball to the basket and get right. himself to the free throw line. The Nuggets have not. Now, the Nuggets need to apply themselves and get to the free throw line as well. As you pointed out, and correctly so, on the whole, and that includes DeAndre Ayton, and it includes Jock Landale, who's done a nice job uh, off the bench for them. Uh, this is not a team that's got really good interior defense or good defense overall. Get those high-percentage shots. Take them to the basket. Get some guys in foul trouble. And even if they don't, guess what you're making them do? You're making them work hard minutes. You need to make sure that the Nuggets force the Suns into expending the effort and using the energy. The energy they use on defense guarding you is the energy can't, they can't use on offense. And consider this part on defense, too. Jump shooters, and you can ask them all you want. I don't, I don't know one who wouldn't tell you that. Jump shooters like Devin Booker or Steph Curry or any of the ones you'd like. They need to shoot 40 shots. They can shoot 40 shots. You can shoot jump shots all day. You're not worn down. You, you just, you can take, you've taken hundreds of them in your backyard since you're a kid. You can just take jump shots. So one of the things you have to be aware of 
when guarding these guys is because you're not going to wear Booker out if he's just taking jumpers. You have to make him take harder jumpers, or you need to steer him a little bit to parts of the court he, he wants to get to, so he has to work around it. You know, make sure that you're you're working on getting through screens. Make sure that, that you're rolling your guy off of those. You have to make sure that Booker has to work to get the shot he wants and maybe on occasion force him to try to drive. He's capable of it. I get that. But force him into doing what he doesn't want right now because, and most of the time in today's NBA, and I would say all the time in today's NBA, the Suns present a unique challenge, Sandy, in so much as when... David Morey out in Houston did all the analytics years ago when he had James Harden realized and basically created this three-point shooting league that we're in and realizing that mid-ranges are actually a bad value for shots. Everyone just takes threes or tries to get close to the basket. Uh, the Suns, because of their ridiculous efficiency at jump shooting, in Booker and Durant's case, they don't. And so teams aren't used to guarding that mid-range. They're, in fact, by and large, willing to let people settle for that. Fine, take that. You can have that. That's not an efficient shot. But as you pointed out to start the show, Booker is sort of destroying the methodology there <laughs> because he's wildly efficient and on a heater. So the, the Nuggets have to make sure that they force him into places he does not want to shoot, even though by default the idea is you want to take kind of a, a contested mid-range, you can have it. It's not a great shot. Yeah. But for him, it is. Well, the problem with Booker is that the conventional methods that that you're referring to, you know, force him into parts of the floor where he's not comfortable. That doesn't appear to be such a place on the basketball floor where, with the ball, he is not comfortable at at this point. He, he's playing at such a high level. But I think you you have to give him different looks, and you have to. Uh, do what they did the other night in in part uh, double team and maybe uh, again at least for a while if Shamit is in the game or Warren's in the game or Ross is in the game saying I, I just I, I know he only took 43 shots in Phoenix in the two games that's not a lot of shots right. but boy wouldn't it be nice if he could only get 16 15 shots off tonight. Now he might go 12 or 13 for 15 or 16, but at, at least you're limiting his shots to try to make him, make him give up the ball and almost present a clear shooting option to somebody else who is unlikely to be as consistently good as Booker has been. I mean, Booker's shooting 64% from the field and 57% from three point land in this series. Right. And that includes all four games, not just the two games in Phoenix. I, I think what they've done in putting different people on him is okay, but something they haven't done is put Aaron Gordon on him. And I would try that to start. And, uh, you know, he didn't get to the foul line the other night, which means, uh, until a minute to go to the game. And I say the other night, game three, he didn't get the foul. Got there a little more in game four, but Aaron Gordon is less likely to get in foul trouble guarding Booker than he 
is guarding Durant Agreed. when Durant's going to the basket, yes. which he wasn't doing the first two games, so Gordon didn't get in any foul trouble. In fact, Durant was in at least as much foul trouble as Gordon was in the first two games of the series. If, if either one of them were in foul trouble, it's just as likely to be Durant. That changed, and I think putting Gordon on Booker, Gordon's an excellent defensive player, but it gets Gordon into the game a little bit. I mean, you're giving him the primary assignment on the floor tonight is defending Devin Booker. That's the primary assignment. So you just got to give him a different look. Just give him a different look. You're you're giving him a different look, and you're putting your best defensive player on their best player. No qualification, not your best post defender, not your best wing defender, your best defender, period. On their most dangerous guy. You're putting him on the guy who's hurting you the most. Mm -hmm. That's basic. That's that's basic in the history of the game. Exactly right. That's the Lakers putting Michael Cooper on Larry Bird, not because he most closely resembles Larry Bird physically, but because Larry Bird doesn't like to play against Michael Cooper. He'll still be Larry Bird, but he'll be, by his own admission, just a little less effective or have to work a little harder, and that's the primary idea. I would rather have Durant get to 30, not 40, but Durant get to 30 than have Booker get to 30. Now, they both scored 36 the other night, and both took fewer than 20 shots from the field in getting to 36 points. At least with Booker, you can't let him shoot 20 for 25, 14 for 18. You can't. I I think that's the trick. He's so he's in such a zone right now that priority one has to be to disrupt Devin Booker's flow. And then you deal with the consequences of that. And does that mean that Kevin Durant goes off for 40? Maybe. You're just gonna have to you just have to deal with the consequences of that as as it comes. But you know that if you continue to do what you've been doing and let Devin Booker shoot 65-70%, you're gonna lose. Because he's he's and just if one gets be that 47 good. and the other gets 39, I, there's no way you can win. And it doesn't even require so much you, from their bench. Step one point. has to disrupt what Devin Booker is doing. Period. If both of these guys go for 30, and they probably will, but here's the thing. If they both go for 30 to 35, the Nuggets win. They win. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't have to shut in, them in down. All, in all likelihood, yes. And yes. You don't have to in shut them down. You have to disrupt yeah. them. You have to get them out of what they want to do. That needs to be step one, and I agree with you. Yeah. Step to doing that is put Booker on I put, pardon me, put Gordon on Booker, and, and I would try Michael Porter Jr. on Durant. Just right. tell him to stick. I, I would, too. Guard like I would. Just get and in your way and put your hands up. Again, I come back to defense with Durant because Durant is the only shot blocker in the series. He's having uh, a good series uh, with, I believe, eight blocks in four games, averaging two blocks a game. Nobody's even close to averaging two blocks a game. Uh, you know, I, I think of all the things he does well, and there aren't too many of them. Uh, DeAndre Ayton uh, is a decent shot blocker, mm-hmm. uh, but he hasn't played enough minutes to block a lot of shots in the series. Uh, this is not a shot blocker series per se, but Durant is the best of the bunch, and you can't have him swatting away shots in the basket area. You, you can't. 
And with Porter, you know, it, you have to bring him out. You have to bring him out. You can't have him roaming yeah. along the interior, freelancing and free to block shots. Yeah, read, is, read the play and block the Dangerous shot. defender if he's allowed to just kind of yes. play center field. That's right. a problem. So they'll have to get onto that as well. We'll obviously have an opportunity to break this down a little bit more as the uh, Denver Gazette's Vinny Benedetto, their Nuggets lead writer, will join us in just a couple right here on Mile High Sports. 